Today on The Topping Show, YouTube censors Steven Crowder thrice, Ron DeSantis signs constitutional carry, McDonald's shuts down all corporate offices this week for remote layoffs, the UFC to purchase WWE, extra space to buy life storage, Google makes cuts, the New York Times loses their Twitter blue checkmark, Trump raises $5 million in 48 hours of indictment, and Mitsubishi Australia recalls cars due to a lack of stickers. All of that and much, much more on The Topping Show. Thank you everyone for tuning in today. Today's episode of The Topping Show is sponsored by ExpressVPN and Topping Technologies. ExpressVPN helps protect your online data and Topping Technologies is an IT value added reseller and services company with a special proficiency in IT security. If you're a business owner or an IT leader, use a little assistance. You can reach them at sales at toppingtechnologies.com. Now, jumping into the business part of the podcast, McDonald's announced that they are closing all U.S. offices for layoffs this week. The company canceled all in-person meetings as well. And the CEO, Chris Kemsinski, let everyone know that this would occur back in January, so it's not too much of a surprise to see this coming. The company is going to be going through some restructuring. And I was astonished. Everyone knows they have hundreds, they have many, many thousands of employees across the globe. They're the largest restaurant that you could think of. But I was surprised how many corporate jobs they have. So across the globe, they have 200,000 corporate employees, which is an astonishing amount of corporate employees. Now, even more interestingly enough, maybe perhaps similar to companies like 7-Eleven, it seems like their overseas presence is actually much greater than the U.S. locations. So overseas, they have about 75% of those corporate employees. And a little basic math lets you know that about 150,000 of those 200,000 employees are outside of the U.S. on the corporate employee level. And given how massive McDonald's is, not just as a brick-and-mortar restaurant company, as a real estate company, also becoming a technology company, as recently they've been incentivizing more and more clients and customers to use their app. That's why for a lot of times, for many times, they're actually giving away like free french fries and free hors d'oeuvres and condiments. I say condiments are always free, but all these other free stacks and incentives so that you would download that McDonald's app on your phone to create a profile because we do live in an era where data is king and it's one of the most valuable assets of the planet. And of course, then they can build a profile on you and then advertise you more effectively, increase their sales, and also increase customer satisfaction as you perhaps get more targeted ads where if you order a particular type of food at McDonald's, you get a specific coupon for that food and not a random coupon that does not apply to you. So it is much more effective to have that type of business model. So you see this across many restaurants, but it is also interesting to see they're considered a budget food. I'm a little surprised they're actually going to have corporate layoffs. A lot of companies have a lot of bureaucratic levels and management. So there's always something you can cut in the largest companies. But given the economy, I would think that their sales are going to increase as more and more families are looking for the greatest ROI or return on investment when they're spending their food dollars and they just want to feed their family and more and more people are suffering from inflation the job market is going down the economy is going down so it's interesting to see their business approach or that their particular business is being affected in that way now other interesting business news on a higher note the ufc and wwe are to merge so the ultimate fighting championship which is one of the most popular fighting pretty much the most popular sporting event bar none made famous partially thanks to joe rogan being the former contender as well as he's a former UFC champion and he was also a talk now he's actually the most popular commentator on it 
I forget if he's actually UFC, UFC champion. I need to I need to look into that again. But nevertheless, his name is synonymous with the sport. And thanks to him being the top podcaster in the world, that's partially helped boost the brand that much more. You also have Dana White being a very prolific owner that a lot of people associate his face being the leader of the company. And he's a very public person who gets a lot of attention further increasing viewership and interest into the sport. Now, it's interesting to note, note that the UFC is owned by Endeavor and they've agreed to purchase WWE at a $9.3 billion valuation, which I thought that was astonishing since given my small sample size of people I know in my day-to-day life, we haven't heard about WWE since we were kids. I mean, there's a lot of really famous characters back in the day, of course, Hulk Hogan, and just, I thought their popularity was dwindling in the past couple of years, but that's a pretty darn good valuation of $9.3 billion. The new entity apparently was going to be publicly traded with an estimated worth, combined net worth of $21 billion being led by Endeavor's Entertainment Executive, Ariel Emanuel. And Endeavor's UFC League will hold 51% of the business with their stock, and WWE would own 49%. They would continue to run the two separate businesses as independent entities. Still no name on what's going to be the largest entity parent company. And, of course, media rights for both of them are going to be independently negotiated. Um, That's what we're being told right now. And that's also a lot of where the dollars are at. You look at the NFL and the NHL, MLB, a lot of the money is also associated with the rights for the entertainment and the distribution of the entertainment. That's why you have all these big contracts with your traditional three-letter acronyms like Fox News, CBS, ABC. All those major news networks will bid and they'll actually pay the most amount of money to have an exclusive contract to distribute that entertainment, which is one of the reasons the Olympics is so expensive is because you have very few outlets that can actually broadcast it and that also you get all the advertising dollars from that so it makes sense for businesses or i guess distribution sites and distribution methods and companies to place a such high valuation now it's interesting that these two companies sort of merge when anecdotally or from the outside it seems like you can't think of two two companies that are more different I mean, a lot of people joke for years that the WWE is fixed. It's kind of like the opera for people that don't like going to the opera. It's one of those things where the UFC is legit. People, you beat the crap out of someone until you win or they tap out. And that's probably what is attractive to that sport of the UFC is because it's real. It's authentic. You have people fighting for their lives in those rings. They're going to fight as hard as they can. And then you contrast that with the WWE where they're using fake chairs and fake balsa wood tables to throw people on. And there's much more pomp and circumstance and acting. And I don't say that in a pejorative term or pejorative way. It's just, it is, it is what it is. It's an entertainment product. They both are entertainment products, but the UFC is real. The other one is scripted. And it's hilarious to think there are some people who still think it's real, even though scripts have been leaked and you just look at Ed McMahon, like you look at all the people in it and they're clearly putting on an act. And it's not a bad thing. It's an entertainment product and a lot of people enjoy it, but to have such two different things combining is pretty fascinating, especially when the UFC is, they're obviously, they think long-term they're gonna make money off of this. That's why they're investing in the WWE and buying them out. But it'll be interesting to see what's, what, what's brought to light of what's 
maybe a leading cause behind this purchase and merger that we might not know about because it seems a little unusual. Now, contrast that with this next business news, which makes perfect sense. You have two storage companies purchasing each other so they can compete with the biggest. So, and these names are so, so generic, they make it hard to follow. Now, one business is called Extra Space, and they are announced that they will purchase another business called Life Storage. And it's nice and confusing for the consumer when you have names that are so synonymous with the act of storage. It's just, it makes it hard for brand identity, although it does get across what they do. Now, Extra Storage, the company will buy Life Storage for seven, or sorry, $12.7 billion. And the result of the deal will be the largest operator of renting out storage space in the United States by the number of locations. Now, they'll actually be overtaking the largest one, which or the current largest one, which you may have heard of called public storage. You see them darn near everywhere. It's also one of those fascinating things where in America, some people own so much stuff, they need other places to store their stuff and they have to pay for it. And which blows my mind. I. I understand if you're moving houses or you have an unusual circumstance, but I've talked to folks where they're just paying hundreds of dollars a month to store something. And I'll ask them like, what's that stuff worth? And the stuff's only worth maybe 300, 400 bucks. So the worst case I ever heard was someone over the past, over years, they spent like 25 grand to store stuff. And it's only worth like five grand. So only a logical way you could really justify that is emotional and sentimental value, which you would argue is priceless. Although in that case, if this value that is such great, I would try to have a circumstance where you could live with those items. But the whole idea of self-storage I've always found is moderately bizarre. For a business use case, that makes more sense if you're storing extra inventory or you're storing some supplies there. That seems like a solid use case. I mean, if you have overflow from your warehouse or your place of business or brick and mortar, it might be a good economic way of renting out additional space without going out and buying a whole another warehouse or another distribution site. But so many people are utilizing this service and it's only increasing popularity, which I find astonishing and also the beauty of capitalism, brilliant idea. It's working for them, of course. Now, other fascinating business news, Google is actually making cuts, which you might hear every 10 years. Google is the largest, most successful company it's the most successful tech company of all time, bar none. If you look at what they've done, their capabilities, their revenue, their profit, I think Apple did beat them one or two years for the, num the actual amount of profit generated or being the most, more accurately, being the most profitable. But if you just think of all the things Google does, I mean, Google Maps, Google Reviews, it's just... And then, of course, brilliantly, they purchased YouTube, which no other business could in terms of they took a loss for years when it came to YouTube. And the only way they were able to grow YouTube was by losing money and bleeding for that much time. And that was not an easy endeavor. If you think of your average consumer, actually, as far as I know, anyone, if you post on YouTube, it does not cost you anything. But it's costing that business real dollars. And they own their own data centers, which... You got to think of heating, cooling, data centers, rudimentarily speaking, just think of a lot of computers in a special building built for the computers, high level thinking. And those computers cost money. They're known as servers. You also have to pay for storage devices. There's a lot of money that's going into that. 
and they're storing it for free. Now, so the only way they make money off of that is advertising. So that's why there's always advertisements on all of the YouTube videos because if there's no advertisements, they, they can't lose money forever. For many years, they lost money and they were able to finally, thanks to building a huge volume of users and content, they were able to turn it and make it a profitable endeavor. But I don't think any other company could have sustained losses for long enough to make the idea of YouTube a long-term viable economic one. Rumble is trying and I, they do have some great people over there and they also have some top tier talent. Rumble is basically YouTube without censorship, spoiler alert, but also they have capabilities, they have less capabilities because it's expensive to start that business. They did go through an IPO or a initial public op, initial public offering so you could purchase stock in them. And Rumble, you're still limited on the video resolution and the audience just isn't there. That's where YouTube and Google wins exponentially is the volume of the audience on the platforms, which makes it so difficult to move platforms. Now, specifically going to the YouTube parent company, Google, which is parent company, Apple, or not Apple, Alphabet, nice and complicated. So Alphabet is the new name of the Google parent entity. Nevertheless, Google says they're making cuts and the CFO, Ruth Porat, or Porat, P-O-R-A-T, she recently announced via company-wide email they are going to make, make cuts to employee services, noting, quote, these are big multi-year efforts. And they will be making cut cuts, cutbacks on the following categories. You have fitness classes, staplers, tape, as well as the frequency of the laptop replacements, which is also one of those things where you save a lot of money in aggregate doing that. However, you're going to have a lot of unsatisfied employees and you're also going to lose productivity, which is something that I found extremely frustrating when I worked in corporate America. Ironically, I worked for a hardware manufacturer. It was the parent or is the pseudo, it was the same company. So I worked at HPE, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. So I worked on the data center side, which is server storage and networking. And there was at the time they still were, were owned the same entity owned HP Inc which is when you think of HP traditionally, you got your printers, laptops. So we, it was all one company when I first started working there. And at the time we got the most economical, which is a nice way of saying cheap. We got the, I forget the actual model, but it was a spinning disc hard drive laptop. And every six months, the spinning disc hard drive would just crash and just completely fail. And about third, I'll say 13% of my wave of new hires, so about 10 people, oh, 13 people out of 100, like every six months, the laptops would break. So the company is losing money because they're paying At the time, it was a base salary. They were paying us that money. But if the laptop doesn't work, you can't work. And throughout time, it used to be you get a new laptop every three years. But then they extended it to five years and seven years. And it got to the point where, due to a bunch of constraints, they wouldn't replace it until it broke. So one of our managers actually had a laptop that was eight years old. It was slower than molasses, but it still technically worked. And we would make jokes all the time, be like, you just need to, you know, bump it off your desk and then tell them it doesn't work. They Then they would buy you a new one. But to work at a tech company where you don't have the latest and greatest device and it's literally not fast enough to do any of the things you need to do, it's slow, you're, you're losing money. So I'm especially fascinated to see that they're going to be doing this at Google, which is a tech company, and they also make their own hardware. So they also know that employees that are not in engineering roles will require a new 
that require a new laptop will be given a Chromebook, which Google does make. So economies of scale, they're going to save an exponential amount of money. They're selling them their own, their own devices, and those devices are also a fraction of a traditional laptop because it's just a Google book. It's not a traditional laptop, which much less capabilities. So at least they acknowledge the fact that engineers, they know they need compute power because that's what they're doing for a living. So they're just going to make sure those gentlemen are taken care of. And they cost a lot per hour, so you want to make sure they're efficient as possible. Now, this is coming off of news about the after in January, they discussed layoffs with the elimination of 12,000 jobs, equating to 6% of their headcount. And Perfat? Uh, Perat. I'm, I'm learning, but... So she also noted, quote, we've been here before. Quote, back in 2008, our expenses were growing faster than our revenue. We improved machine utilization, narrowed our real estate investments, tightening our belt on TNE budgets, cafes, micro kitchens, and mobile phone usage, and removing the hybrid vehicle subsidiary. Or subsidiary, more accurately. And this all comes not too much as a surprise as Google's main source of revenue is advertising dollars. And during economic downturns, similar to 2008, one of the things that's easiest for a company to decrease the cost is just advertise less. Because you're gonna pay your employees before you pay for a Google YouTube advertisement, most more often than not. You're gonna pay your fixed expenses and you're gonna pay the talent first, you're gonna pay for the materials to make a product, Advertising is usually the first thing to get cut when there is tough times in the economy. So it's not too surprising, but they are large. It is also a sign of the ripple effect of the economic times that we're going through. Now, going on to the culture part of the podcast and also talking more about YouTube. YouTube has banned Steven Crowder, comedian, stand, a stand-up comedian known as conservative commentary. There's a lot of political news as well. He has a really good format interview where he actually goes to college campuses and he has a change my mind segment where he'll actually talk to anyone who wants to talk to him. He has a topic he wants to bring up. He has it on a little banner on his little table and he'll just talk about anything from gun control, abortion, all the fascinating political topics. And he'll just talk to people, get to their opinion. And their goal is to try to change his mind. And he also brings a notebook, you know, filled with all the references and facts that he will bring to light when he's having those conversations. And it's very entertaining, and it is nice to see some people cordial enough to have a sit-down, media, a sit-down, calm exchange of ideas. Granted, the more entertaining ones are the ones where you have someone that doesn't have that type of maturity, and they just facts and logic just bounce off them. And it's, those are entertaining, but I always find that the conversations are more eloquent ones are a little bit nicer as well. Now. He has been slapped with three different violations in a seven-day time span. Now, it is important to note, he just got a huge contract. I say huge. He was a entertainer, or he was a contract employee for The Blaze, which is a media outlet out of Texas. And that's how he traditionally had his mug club, which is how he makes money, because YouTube demonetized him years ago, which specifically means YouTube makes money off his content because they have those advertisements, but he does not make anything off that. And one of the reasons you don't see any advertisements on my channel is because we're not big enough yet. Usually you need 1,000 subscribers, and I think is a couple thousand of viewing hours. And he has that in spades. He's the most popular entertainer, especially in conservative media. He has a little bit under 6 million subscribers on YouTube. So YouTube makes a lot of profit off of him. He isn't making any of that. 
However, it's very important to his business model because it's known as a sales funnel. And like we were saying earlier, YouTube has the largest audience and the largest using user base and the most people making content for the platform. So one of the reasons he makes so much money off of this YouTube, think of it as a jumping board or a springboard, people will go on YouTube, they'll see his content. And when he wants to talk about topics that YouTube specifically bans or censors, he'll say, hey, there's some things I can't say on this platform. However, if you subscribe to Mug Club, which is his paid subscription service, then you can see all the content YouTube won't let me show you. So those were some say, some phrases as behind a paywall, but for his case, it makes sense. So he signed an exclusive contract with Rumble recently. So he moved over from the Blaze and that's where his Mug Club is being hosted. So if you want to see all, and YouTube, Rumble also doesn't, they don't censor in general. So these three episodes are still on Rumble. So the first episode was after the Nashville shooting, he had a video called Nashville Uncensored and the Truth from A to Z. And because he brings up the sexual orientation or the gender identity, I don't know how you phrase it, but he brought those things up during the conversation. YouTube actually struck it down saying that it goes against their hate speech policy. And I didn't see that uh, actual clip, but he does say some aggressive things, but he's never said anything violent or doesn't call him to action. He just has a bombastic, entertaining way of saying his thoughts and ideals. So I personally, I find that a little skeptical when they say hate speech, especially because society has devolved to the point where if you say something I don't like, it's hate speech. Now, the second video, it was titled, Wait, We're Back, Trump is Going to Jail. That was struck down for a harassment policy. Interestingly enough, Crowder noted that that was how they were introduced to the new CEO, Neil Mohan. And spoiler alert, He's basically the same thing as Susan Majewski with, in regard to censoring, unfortunately, one particular viewpoint. Now, the third one that was censored on Crowder Bits. So his other channel on YouTube is called Crowder Bits, which is basically just the highlights of his long format videos. His long format videos or his daily videos, usually, I want to say between 45 minutes, maybe an hour. So these things are the clips behind taking out of that, which is brilliant because, again, as a great way to advertise is to send people easy digestible clips. I'll eventually get to that as well when we start chopping these up for highlights and such. Now, that third video was called on Crowder Bits was called Crowder Reacts to 13-year-old drag performer twerking on stage, unquote. Now, ironically, that was removed against the YouTube Google policy of statements that sexualize minors. And he was just commenting on it, but there's YouTube content that highlights those as a glorified thing and as far as I can tell I those are not being struck down I believe it's because he is against this act he is getting some pushback and that's why they are censoring it as other companies and business actually glorify that act which I still don't understand I can't think of anything any word to describe that those acts is anything but viscerally morally vacuous or disgusting all of the above now It'll be interesting to see if they completely blacklist it so that he can't post any content on there at all. There's a little bit of vernacular going around. Some are saying he's completely banned. Some are saying those videos are just struck down. Now, he has two strikes, which in YouTube, you get three strikes. They nuke your channel completely and erase it from history. 
which is especially concerning considering anyone can accuse you of anything and there's not much recourse unless you get to his level then eventually you get to a certain point where you have a rep at google who's supposedly there to help you there because there's like a lot of tech companies there's not a 1-800 number where you can just call and say hey i need i need some help can you assist uh, it's usually through email and of course it's always skeptical of how many of those emails get to you versus just throwing in the trash do their spam filter block you so a lot unfortunately a lot of small creators are just nuked and you never even hear about them and it'll be interesting to see how this affects his channel because that is how he gets most of his viewers now other interesting culture news elon musk strips the new york times away of their blue chip uh twitter check mark which is kind of skeptical i should have rewritten that that's a little sensational he didn't strip it away he just said if you don't pay for this you're not going to get to keep it so phrasing as some might say so elon had previously told everyone who had gotten a blue check mark that they would have until last saturday to buy premium twitter subscription or they would lose their check mark on their profile and the new york times straight out came out and said they will not pay for twitter verification they currently have about 55 million followers so in their case, there might not be too much confusion between a account that's trying to mimic them, which a lot of people say that's one of the justifications of buying Twitter Blue is that you look more authentic and people know you have $8 to spend a month. But in this case, if you just clicked on their profile, you'll see 55 million followers. You know it's the original, real New York Times. That being said, the level of scrutiny these days or how much... The number of people actually read beyond the headline is very concerning, or also known as disappointing. So if you have eight bucks, that actually might be an effective way to parody the account. Now, going on to the interesting political news, Trump has now increased the amount he raised after the indictment. So within 24 hours, is about $4 million. So in 48 hours of his announcement of indictment, he made $5 million, or more accurately, his campaign raised $5 million additional dollars. And other interesting news on that, more than 16,000 people have signed up for the Trump campaign to become volunteers within two days of the indictment. Volunteering roles include, but are not limited to, poll watching, canvassing, door knocking, event volunteering, and making phone calls. Which, you have to really like a politician to cold call for them. Most of my career, I have a technology and sales background, especially when you first get started you're called a BDR business development rep, which is a very nice glorified way of saying cold call as many calls as you can a day, set appointments for the sales reps. And I love technology and I always find it fascinating. So I, I find it a challenge and I enjoy it. But I know a lot of people who burn out of sales because they don't like to cold call, they're intimidated by it. Imagine having to cold call, so you're not getting paid, but you're doing cold calling for a politician whatever politician it be, left, right, center, whoever it, is, whoever it is, you have to be pretty passionate to be willing to do that. Which also begs the question, who has so much time on their hands? I usually work 105 hours a week, and these people are kind of like protesting. I think peaceful protest is an important part of being American and just you know, human rights, but who has time to go to protest on a Wednesday afternoon? I don't know. It's one of those things, but to have 16,000 people signing up for that, that's certainly a vote of confidence in his campaign. Again, like I predicted earlier, I think this is just going to further galvanize the people who already believe in him. Maybe he'll get some independent voters starting to pay attention, and it'll just continue to increase the people on the left who think he's a criminal and justify that opinion of him. 
it'll be interesting to see how many people are really affected in the middle, which is what he needs. If he wants to win, he needs to get those independent voters. I said this time and time again, and it is true. Will they see this as political persecution, as being the first politician who's actually going through this process? Or will they think it's justified, even though this is unprecedented? Pun moderately intended, presidented. So it'll be interesting to see how that progresses. He is supposedly going to be arrested on within hours of me making this video, I think by Wednesday at the latest. Some are saying that he's wants to be handcuffed, perp walk, as well as the mugshot. Now, other people are saying they're going to censor the mugshot and not release it to the public. However, inevitably, with security being so lax and people being so vacuous, there's going to be leaks. And a lot of people are saying it's going to make a that's going to be a campaign booster for him because they'll sell t-shirts with it. And shoot, people on the left might do that too. Maybe that'll be maybe that will unite America. His mugshot on a t-shirt. Everyone will wear it. Maybe. But it'll be interesting to see how that situation evolves as it is right now one of the most popular political news across every site I look into. And it's unprecedented, so it's interesting. Now, more normal political news, Ron DeSantis famous politician out of Florida, he signed the constitutional carry on 4-3-23. And this new legislation would allow law-abiding citizens to defend themselves by carrying a firearm without a permit. It passed Georgia legislature last Thursday, and Florida becomes the 26th state that allows residents to carry, to carry concealed weapons without a permit, also known as constitutional carry. If you Google that term, that's the synonymous term when it comes to this type of content. Now, Tampa-based Republican Senator Jay Collins noted, quote, here in the free state of Florida, the government will not get in the way of law-abiding Americans who want to defend themselves and their families, unquote. The new law goes into effect July 1st. And it does not end the concealed carry permit program. It just makes it optional, which I think is important as well. Even if your state isn't required, I still highly recommend taking those courses because they'll teach you the legalities and intricacies of when you're allowed to unholster your weapon, and then more importantly, what happens when you do unholster that and pull that trigger, and it is a good solid reminder of every bullet that leaves your gun, you are legally responsible for, and your life will be changed, so you should not take it, should not take it lightly. Even if it's justified, you'll still be arrested, you'll still go to jail, you have to prove your innocence. Granted, you should be proven innocent, you should be innocent until proven guilty, but you still have to go through the process and it's a life-changing experience. So you should take it very seriously, a lot of proponents of this legislation note places like New Jersey, New York, where they make it prohibitively darn near impossible to get a permit unless you're a politically unless you're politically connected, or grease the wheels, also known as bribery extortion. And in those places, you also have other places that have shall issue versus must issue. There's different legal precedents of who gets a concealed carry license in those states that have it. But personally, I think this is best because now you don't have the government taking away that right. Most states, you are allowed to carry a handgun or a gun in your car because it's the Castle Doctrine just extended. Rudimentary speaking, it's your place of residence, your place of business extended via the vehicle. Now, it's funny. A lot of people said when Texas did this, you know, crime is going to skyrocket exponentially. There's going to be a lot of people who don't know how to use guns. There's going to be shootings all, all over. And after the law passed for constitutional carry in Texas, nothing happened. The, the rates of crime and the rates of shootings, the rates of accidental discharges, they're all about the same. 
So it's one of those things where there's, there's a lot of hysteria around the topic, but it just further ensures your right to defend yourself. And these days, unfortunately, you need to be more and more prepared to do that as your duty to protect yourself and your family. Now, going on to the business blunder of the day, Mitsubishi Australia has a recall. So the company is recalling 7,468 vehicles. Those vehicles include the Mitsubishi Eclipse Cross, Mirage, Outlander, Pajero, Pajero Sport, Tryon. Those vehicles were all sold between 2020 and 2022. And the reason is they forgot to apply a sticker on the keys i kid you not the engine the drivetrain the whole vehicle that's fine it's reliable it works their recall is because of a sticker now in 2022 the federal government introduced new legislation which requires all products which carry a powered battery button key fobs included to be produced in a way that ensures children cannot get access to the potentially deadly devices now the recall notice large in the in the Department of Infrastructure says, quote, some remote keys supplied to the consumers do not contain the sufficient button battery warnings and do not comply with the mandatory labeling requirements for items containing, containing button batteries. Therefore, consumers might be unaware that the key uses a button battery and the risk posed to young children. In the absence of the necessary warnings, if young children gain access to the button batteries and ingest them, they are likely to suffer from internal burns injuries which can result in death or serious injuries battery button batteries also pose a choking hazard to young children now button batteries in case you don't open up your key fob lot they're the ones that are about the size of a coin they look like a button and they're being recalled because they don't have a sticker telling you that there's a battery inside a key which pretty much all keys have had batteries for decades now and this reminds me of all those silly warning labels you, th you see throughout your life where you have to ask yourself, really? What lawsuit resulted from that? Like, like there's a, literally a meme where decades ago, you used to be able to, they used to train you of how to change your vehicles, cams, your timings, and a bunch of other stuff. And now they have a warning that says, do not drink the lead acid battery, which is not a good sign for the int intellect of modern society doesn't seem like we're getting smarter in that regard where you have to have a warning and if they don't have that little sticker on it kids might not know so this is perhaps the silliest recall and it also highlights the importance of having corporate lawyers unfortunately you have to have them evaluate so many things especially in automotive where there's so many rules and regulations and I can only assume there's even more in Australia because they didn't have a sticker on their little key fob they now have to recall all those vehicles which is astonishing but nevertheless it was a law and for sure it's going to cost them a lot of money to have that recall so they can place a little sticker on the key fob nevertheless that is certainly the business blunder of the day thank you so much for tuning in today can't thank everyone enough for subscribing don't forget again to like subscribe comment tell your family tell your friends tell your coworkers. heck tell your enemies tell anyone to stay safe and fight the good fight